0: Well,
1: maybe we should start with, you know, why this is still important today, why these stories are still important today. Absolutely. Um, um, You know, there's a couple different legacies that these women uh, set in motion. One, of course, is the leave no man behind legacy, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Before Mm -hmm. Vietnam, we've always said that we leave no man behind. But before Vietnam, that really wasn't true. We have... Seventy-two thousand missing from World War II. We have more than 7, 7,000 7, missing from Korea. And you know, in previous wars, we just left our missing missing. We we had an organization called a, an agency called the U.S. Graves Registration that did their best to retrieve remains and return them to their families, but within a year of the cessation of hostilities. All missing were declared dead, and we just moved on. Uh, that changed during the Vietnam War because of the work of these women, and we can go into great detail about that. But that's legacy number one. Legacy number two, of course, is that prior to Vietnam, military families were really never given much priority. Um, but after Vietnam, as a result of the the urgency that these women um, made the fate of their men and Um, the noise that they made over the lack of attention and care that they received. And quite honestly, because of the work of one of the women in our book, Alice Stratton, who became the first deputy assistant secretary of the Navy for Family Matters. You know, after Vietnam, the the military realized that the happiness of military families is a retention issue. Mm -hmm. And resilience. Yeah. So those are two legacies that military families and our nation's military is still appreciating and living with today.
0: So let's walk this back and talk about who you two are, because both of you are authors. You are both veterans yourself, and you're not just uh you know, off the shelf authors, you both have serious amount of books and writing behind you. And that shows when it comes to talking about individuals and their stories and the depth that you went into this book. And the book that I'm speaking about is Unwavering, The Wives Who Fought to Ensure No Man is Left Behind. And this book is one of the most dense for a good reason books I've ever read. And when I say that it pulls you back, I mean, it. when you're reading it, it pulls you back into a time that is so drastically different than the current the current in, what, what month are we now? May 23. And so it is such a blast into the past, but the reality is a lot of the things that happen in this book are um, you know, a direct result of where the world was sitting at that time and where women's statures were. And that's a really interesting thing that you pull apart in here. And this book is so relevant for so many reasons in this day and age, but mainly, and in my personal opinion, These types of books need to be taught, read, and educated in schools so that we can learn something from our constant fuck-ups. You know, the amount of times that we've left people suffering on their own, whether it's in combat, after combat, post, pre, whatever you want to call it, there is a fallout, and the fallouts are the families. And the families and the suicide rate and the statistics are roughly around 94% of special operations, families are divorced. So back then, it seemed like women just stuck with the man. And they were left behind to fill all of the voids and all of the holes. And the government seemed to, once again, leave everyone in the quiet and fuck everything up. So why, why? Number one, both of you are vets. So I can understand the pull to this story and the want and need to get this out there. But why put... I mean, cause this has got to have been a considerable amount of time and effort research. I mean, my God, the, the amount of citing that you put in this book alone is so damn impressive because the amount of individuals you've spoken to and the amount of people that you've really, I mean, you've you dove into their lives in the most intimate ways. And I just wanna know why you would take on such a monumental task of bringing this story forward. Hey humans, I know you've all been seeing me drink HVMN's ketone IQ lately. This is a game changer, jet fuel in a bottle. I use Ketone IQ for everything in my life, whether it's running, cycling, podcasting, or just the extra boost that my brain needs. I won't lie, it helps push me to the next level in all things. I love Ketone IQ and what HVMN stands for. Go grab some shots today at hvmn.com and use the code BRASS20 and save.
2: I'll take some of that. I mean, Taylor has written about POWs Many times, and we know their story and we know how um, courageous the Vietnam POWs were, the longest held in American history. But what is amazing is the little known story of the women behind them. From my perspective, it was the trailblazing work they did against all odds, and the challenges they overcame that are really instructive. Who among us hasn't been through something that's unimaginable, unimaginable? Who among us hasn't dealt with the unpredictable? But going back to when I was you know, a young girl, I read biographies and it was always informative about how folks cope under things we can't even dream up and what they did to stay true to their message. So I think it's instructive. I think it was an important story. I think we both did. And as we began peeling back the layers, the women revealed things about themselves that weren't immediately obvious at first and how they differed and how their backgrounds differed and how they were strong when they were individuals working on this cause and then how they came together to make themselves stronger against the din and the noise of the 1960s and all that was changing in society, gender, race, or how we dealt internationally, how America viewed itself and what we did with policy. And they went from, as we say, the sidelines to the front lines of their own epic home front battle.
0: It was for still, me. that's a heavy, that's a heavy task to, to pull this all together. Yes,
1: for me, Kelsey, um, this story began when I was about six years old and I come from a military family. I was third generation in my family to serve in the Navy. And I spent uh, a good part of my childhood in Coronado, California, uh, the mm-hmm. island in San Diego, which as you probably know is a, a, a tight military community. I was today. there two weeks ago. Oh, well, lucky you. I'll be there mm-hmm.
2: in a week. We'll be there two weeks. Mm. Yes.
1: Um, you know, Even today, it is a, it is a very, very uh, tight military community. But before that bridge was built, it <laughs> was a tighter military community. And so I, you know, have memories of a, a six-year-old memory of the POW's homecoming in 1973. I remember the yellow ribbons on the trees and the handmade welcome home posters on the front porches. Um, and that left that left a mark on me. I grew up with some of the characters in the book, um, some of the children of the uh, POWs and MIAs. Um, And then in the year 2000, I was a volunteer for the McCain for President campaign, and I was assigned the task of escorting some of the POWs who were campaigning for him uh, to a few media interviews. And I was struck by the fact that most of the reporters only asked the man about their time in captivity. You know the typical questions: "Oh, while you were a prisoner, were you?" What were you fed? Were you tortured? Did your wife leave you when you're in captivity? And I knew that these were the longest held group of POWs in our nation's history. But what I didn't know was how successful they were in captivity and also how successful they were post-captivity. And I thought, wow, there's got to be some great stories about how these men rebuilt their lives and reintegrated themselves with their families. So that embarked me on a journey. I wrote two books about our POWs got to know them, have a big body of research that I've collected over the last 20 years. And then eight years ago, one of the men, Captain Dick Stratton, whose wife, Alice Stratton, is a major character in the book, contacted me and he said, you know, there's been so much written about us and our epic, you know, battle against the North Vietnamese, but much less has been written about our wives and and our families who waged an equally epic home front battle not just against the US government, but against fellow Americans. And so that embarked me on the journey of writing this book. And I recruited Judy to to write it with me.
0: It's wild when you read it, because the amount of similarities and overlap that you see with the administration then, I mean, it was Richard Nixon. So There was a lot of fallout, but the amount of overlap that you see with Richard Nixon and the overlap you're seeing with the current sitting time with the lack of accountability, lack of leadership, lack of willing to move. I mean, you've got the iconic photo of the Chinook taking off. We have the iconic photo for my time in service of the Chinook taking off. There is a pattern of behavior. And when you're able to pull it apart the way that you did, and show how real movement and change happens and how real behind the scenes work is really done because it's not through, sorry, it's not through the Congress meetings that you see on TV and the people banging and screaming and doing, nothing happens that way. Everything happens very quietly, very backdoor. And there has to be almost like a attack on your own government to get them to pay attention to you. And when I was reading how it was done the first time, When Nixon got in. It was brilliant. It was like the back then of something going viral. And I want to talk a little bit about these women and how they were able to get to where they they did, which was ultimately, they made so much noise that you could not ignore them any longer. And back then, women were not allowed to make that type of noise. They were to stay at home, stay quiet, Just accept the fact that you're not getting news about your husband who's been downed or possibly been killed and is missing. And that's totally fine. You have to sit there, shut up and take it because your government has said so. So I wanna talk about how they were so, I mean, and they did it dressed so beautifully too. I mean, the class that was back then compared to now when it comes to uh, lobbying and going against government. So bring these women's uh, stories forward, please. And tell me how
2: this all started.
1: You want to start well with?
2: there were a couple of things that happened um you know first they did it furtively they weren't sure they were told by the government in context in the 1960s backdoor diplomacy had worked very well I take you back to the Gary Powers incident in 1960 to 62 you we know that um keeping quiet keeping families quiet while there was quiet diplomacy going on on behalf of the on the part of the government really seemed to work But as time wore on and the war dragged on longer than anyone believed it was going to, it seemed like it was time for a new method. And when on the eve of Nixon's inauguration, when the women had been ignored for years by the Johnson administration, they mobilized and sent a slew, a barrage, of telegrams to the White House, prompting the president to say how many of them are there? Now, it was only 2,000 by today's numbers of yes. emails you could send overnight. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a lot, but it was different, and they were still being patient and obedient and quiet, but they had captured his attention, and if you fast forward a few months, his new Secretary of Defense, Melvin Laird, recognized that, you know, well, I mean, I'm sorry, about a year. This isn't working. It's an abject failure, so um, he announced the go public policy, which allowed them to speak. But in between, and Taylor probably will tell you a little bit about this, the um, Pueblo incident occurred. And as you probably know, the USS Pueblo was captured in international waters off the coast of North Korea and the crew was detained. And suddenly the commanding officer's wife found herself uh, in front of media with microphones in her face and bright lights and she was forthright. And this captured, we believe, the attention of some of the Vietnam era POW and um, missing wives. And they um, began to think, gee, look what she's doing. And by October of, I believe it was 1968, Sybil Stockdale, whose husband had been captive for three years, decided she was going to go public too. And she went to the San Diego Union newspaper and did an interview. Taylor, that opened up the floodgates, correct? For Absolutely. others.
1: Yes, uh, that that newspaper article is on the front page of the San Diego Union. It was a pretty brave thing to do because she was defying government policy. But as Judy mentioned, and then as I also believe, I think the Pueblo incident um, lent some, Impact. I I really think it impacted the POW wives and the MIA wives from the Vietnam War. Because at this point, by the fall of 68, some of the men had been in captivity for three and a half years. and...
0: And brought to you by Mindful Meds. You guys have been seeing me take Mindful Meds for a little while now. Mindful Meds is a premium supplement company dedicated to supplying humans with the tools to improve their mental health, clarity, and performance, all while supporting their growth along the way. Whether it's the Immunity Blend, Lion's Mane, Inspire, or Voyage, all of their products are clean, tested, consistent, and they've become a huge help in my life. I found Mindful Meds over a year ago now, and I've never looked back. Go check out their website, mindfulmeds.io, and use the code BRASS at checkout.
1: In contrast, the Pueblo was captured in January of 68, and it was all over the news, and the diplomats began negotiating for the men's release Almost immediately, Rose Bucher was all over the media. She met with the Secretary of State. She spoke at the American Legion conference. She went on a national media tour. She held up signs, you know, remember the Pueblo. And guess what? She got her man home in December of 68, 11 months later.
0: Why you and- think? They- why do you think that is though? Because I mean, to me, what that looks like is yes, that was that was caught publicly and they made, they were made an example of. But is there anything to be said around that ship and what could have been on that ship and what that ship's mission was and why there was an an innate need to have these specific individuals not in the hands of any sort of Viet Cong or Koreans?
1: Well, yes, I mean it was an intelligence gathering ship that was that was there. Was, it was no secret, yeah. But they were in international waters. Um, yeah. In, in any event, the the negotiations happened immediately. It happened. It happened immediately, and that wasn't the case with you know the POWs held in Vietnam. But as Judy also mentioned, in the defense of the U.S. government, their Cold War policy of quiet backwater, not backwater, back channel negotiation, diplomatic negotiations, had secured the release of Americans held in captivity all throughout the Cold War. And so they were pursuing the same policy. They we only had a handful of POWs in the fall of 64 and early 65. But man, once we started Operation Rolling Thunder and we landed troops in you know March of 65, we started having hundreds of captive men and thousands of missing men. And all of a sudden, this tactic, you know, clearly was not going to work. But that Averill Harriman in the State Department just would not give up and change course. And it took Melvin Laird and it took Sybil Stockdale and several of the other women who just started getting noisy to force the government to change policy in May of 69. And that opened the floodgates. And then all of a sudden, as you said, these women could not be ignored. I mean, they were all over the media. They were all over the world meeting with world leaders, the United Nations, appearing on national TV talk shows. Uh, creating the bracelet campaign. I don't know if you remember the POW MIA bracelets, but they mm-hmm. were wildly successful. More than five million were sold. Sonny and Cher wore bracelets. Frank Sinatra wore bracelets. Ronald Reagan wore bracelets. Everybody wore them, and all of a sudden, the plight of these men became
2: personal. Oh, I know and, the power of bracelets.
0: Yeah. Well,
2: today we will. <laughs> Today we wear the rubber band braces, but this was the first grassroots organizing and it was human, it was a humanitarian issue that in a very divisive war allowed the nation to rally around the cause together. Even though there was lots of disagreement about whether the war should be going on or not, and that is the beauty of the success of their grassroots movement that you could still win the hearts and minds of people to understand that. And 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 this was folks from the age of 12 on up who were wearing bracelets all over the nation, remembering someone. And it is something that we still do today, wearing a, a rubber band for nearly every humanitarian cause that's out there. And it's really wildly successful. And then Taylor mentioned the POW flag. That icon is, it's ubiquitous, it flies everywhere. And so it flies over federal buildings. It flies over the nation's capital. It flies over the White House. And it's hoisted to make sure we do not forget, which has become quintessential American value. So this is the change the women wrought.
0: It seems like we need those women again.
2: <laughs>
0: Sorry. I mean, I'm from a generation where we have moved on to the next one so fast. it will make your head spin. That's true. You know, the... <laughs> the amount of books that are being written about GWAT and the amount of, I mean, I'm sitting beside a stack of books right now and every single one of those people minus one is an author from my time and service. And we have more written, more talked about than ever, but yet it still seems like it's, it's more forgotten than it's ever been.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you know, something that might have worked in their favor, if you think back, is they did compete with other causes, but there weren't multiple channels. And right. now we have so many channels coming out, coming yeah. at us. I mean, this is the first televised, fully televised war. Wars had been televised before, but they were orchestrated. This was basically uncensored and basically from the front lines, and it captivated the nation, even though many looked away. Everybody agreed this was going to be tough. And again, this was a war that we went into thinking it will take us a short amount of time. The stomach for it changed, but the women persisted. Talk to me about
0: these women because it is not like it is again now where women hold positions and a ton of jobs and have, you know, six different children. Most people I know who have more than three children are stay at home moms because they absolutely have to, but these women were not just stay at home moms. They were single parenting and they were running massive households and they were running this conglomerate, which turned into this massive movement and the nation, like was the national league of families. And it turned into this animal. So walk me through what that was like, because it seems like you guys, you know, you've were raised around those children, so you could see the impacts. Yeah, you have to remember,
1: uh, for your listeners, uh, you know, who are your age um, or younger, that in the 1960s, you know, women lived under very, very different restrictions. I mean, there were only a few jobs available to them, and when they got married and had children, those jobs, in many cases, were not available to them. Um, they women did not travel by themselves. The women in our book told told us, you know, we didn't go out to dinner by ourselves. It just was not done. They still wore white gloves when they went out to lunch and drove their car. Uh, they could not get a mortgage or a car without their husband's uh, signature or their father's signature. Uh, they could get the birth control pill; it was available. But oh. if they were, but if they were married, they had to get their husband's permission. In many cases. The doctors would not prescribe it. And if they were single, there were many doctors who would not prescribe the birth control pill to to single women. It was a very, very different time. Very different And I'd like
2: to add to that because you Taylor brought up some really good points, but not only couldn't they get the credit, but when they cashed, if they were able to arrange to get it, their husband's paychecks, and for some it took a long time, they were looked at askance by bankers who said, why isn't your husband in tow? Can't you get his signature? Just send it to him. Most didn't know what, if they knew they were captive, they didn't know which prison they were at or how to write to them. All those rights that were afforded under the Geneva Convention were not necessarily afforded to these families. And that's what they were fighting for, was basic accounting, basic treatment, basic decency. And so, You've got the restrictions of your gender. You've got the restrictions of a society that doesn't accept certain answers to things. And you've got even something else. Each military branch had their own sort of policy. that regarding the way women were to behave. The Navy Wife is a book that um, Taylor <laughs> told me about. And it's very interesting <laughs> about what they will and won't do. And, and it guided, you know, it sounded thrilling to some of them, as you've read in the book, I'm sure. But, mm-hmm. you know, it also was very restrictive. And it was originally written, I believe, in 1949, was it, Taylor? 40, yeah, and then updated in 1955. But if you fast forward 10 years, society's starting to change and the book didn't. So you're being caught between worlds. And again, it's not necessarily anyone's fault, it's who's able to move forward and and who's driving that forward.
0: No, absolutely. It's uh, uh, There's something I just, I took a note on, I wanna to touch on, but before we get to that, uh, you brought up the, <laughs> the Navy Wife book. Okay, so that was uh, comical to say the least when I'm reading because I am such an outspoken individual and, I, and the idea or thought that, that I had to live my life that way makes my skin crawl and my spine hurt. But uh, number one, maybe it was beneficial those women never got the birth control because now we understand how damaging that is to the body. So that's fantastic. Um, so maybe they dodged a bullet on that. The fact that they couldn't get access at all was completely unacceptable to say the least. But we've seen as time has gone on, the massive changes and how rapid it's changed. So when you look at that Navy wife book, it made me laugh a little to see and hear some of the things that were to be a Navy wife, to be a pilot's wife, to be an army man's wife. There's very strict code in how you dressed, how you walked, what you wore, where you went and who you went with. And it was not only strict, but it affected, it seemed outside perspective, seemed like depending on the wife you had, It affected your position in the service and how you could move up and how you were seen by other sailors and other, um, and other flight individuals. So talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. The way that the families acted, especially the wives, absolutely reflected on, on, on the military men and their, and it affected their careers. And the wives were told that from a very, 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 um, early, early time and, you know, there was a pecking order. These, this, these were the, this was the era when the wives wore their husband's rank.
0: Wild.
1: Yeah. That's,
0: do you know what we call that nowadays? Do you, do you know the name for it? No. I feel like both of you should, you both of you don't know the name of what we call those people now. I've been
1: out 30 years, Kelsey.
0: Oh, it's okay. I've been out 11, but you still have to be knowing this name. It's so they, um, they make jokes about it a lot, like coffee or die and stuff, but it's um, (laughs) (laughs) dependopotamus. And so that dependopotamus drives up and they expect you to salute as if you're your husband's rank. But the fact of the matter is that was, that's where that came from. That was the reality then.
1: That was the reality. Yes.
2: You know, in in some ways, culturally, it was more clear. The lines were more clear, but it, it was, was very restrictive when a war lasts longer or an official is, "Whoa, you're trying to change things," and and we don't have a policy for that. But you know, we're looking at all of us are looking at at it through the lens of, a, you know, here an era where women are allowed to serve, not only allowed to serve but flourish. I mean, I was in the Coast Guard, and um, You know we now have a head of the service who's a female that was unthinkable at the time i mean there was no maternity uniform when women first started so our lens is different and i caution you our readers basically to understand that this is a a documentation also of where we've been and where we headed to and maybe where we're going and it's not necessarily a commentary on was it good was it bad it was where we were at as a nation and a world
0: Oh no, and I don't think it was bad. I think highlighting it is is essential. I think it's necessary. I think when you try to change or censor or whitewash or do whatever you wanna do to literature from way back when, just because you didn't understand how Dr. Seuss wrote something or how somebody else worded something and you try to change history, you don't get to change history just because of how you feel now. That is called censorship. So if you're reading this and you're like, well, I don't think that's fair for those women. Well, too damn bad. That was the reality. Accept it or move on. You have to know that it was not always this easy for women. And I say this easy because I am so sorry. It is this easy for women if you choose to not allow that to hold you back. But others do. I digress. My point is this group of women here, nowadays, if we're given half of the rights, a quarter of the rights, to what we have now, can you imagine what they could have accomplished and how quickly they could have accomplished it if they just had those freedoms? It was so damn different then.
1: You know what's it, interesting? It is,
0: if you ask them,
1: if you tell them, well, you were, you were really in the vanguard of the feminist movement, they they get all askance and they, <laughs> they never describe themselves as feminists. No, we we weren't feminists. Well, it, it, in a, in essence, they were. Yes, they, Absolutely were. They, they were the- they were blazing trails, but they would never, because of their generation, they just would not describe themselves as feminists. And
2: that's okay. That's, that's okay. And to you know, Taylor, to your point, I mean, just the other day I was talking to one of the wives in our book. She's an MIA wife. Her husband's remains were returned years after the other POWs got home, five years. And um, it's tragic. It's a tragic story, and you don't wish it on anyone. But I asked her, how did you really do it? And she said, and she says this all the time. You know, when you're faced with the unthinkable you put one foot in front of the other. This was a stoic generation. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist now. It means they did whatever they had to do. They had moxie, they were gutsy but they also knew how to work within the lines and the boundaries that were drawn for them. And that is instructive too. But you know, I keep thinking when we wrote the book, and I, I I don't know that we've said this to many people during an interview, but we wrote it with um, the excerpts of songs to start tra- uh, chapters to kind of set the mood. Uh, Taylor put together our, our song list on Spotify, which you can, is it on the website, Taylor? It's not on the website yet. Okay, but, but we can provide that to I you. That. The, um, But the song that keeps going through my head is bob dylan singing the times they are changing because nothing captures it better the role of gender the role of race the role of women the hierarchy in the military and the hierarchy in society that we impose on one another nothing captures it better than the title of that song
0: god damn always toward war yeah you're right the feelings toward war drastically changed after that absolutely
1: Absolutely. But, but what we came to learn is that these women made the fate of their men so important to the nation, to the American public, that Nixon was really left with no other option than to embrace these women. And some people might say that he used them in his campaign to, uh, End the war honorably, peace you know, peace with honor. Um, others would say that he co-opted them, but there's no doubt in my mind that he and the wives were a team in the campaign to make the fate of these men an absolute national priority. I I, I ask many young people today. I say, do you remember when? the Royal wedding happened a few years ago, or if you're old enough, you might remember the Royal wedding 35 years ago, 40 years ago of Diana and Charles. People, Americans got up in the middle of the night to watch mm-hmm. to watch that live on television. Well, when the POWs returned home, think about us, we had three TV stations, right? NBC, ABC, and CBS. They carried the the return of these men 591 men, a tiny fraction of the 58,000 casualties we had in Vietnam, the 2.1 million who served in Vietnam, all three networks carried their return to the United States. They made their first stop at Clark Air Base in the Philippines. So it was in, it was daylight there, it was in the middle of the night in the US. They carried it live on television in the middle of the night and millions of Americans got up in the middle of the night to watch them get off the plane. That didn't happen for the average Vietnam veteran who was returning home by himself on a plane, on a commercial plane, getting off the airport, getting off the plane in San Francisco, immediately going and changing into his civilian clothes because he was afraid, he was advised to do that because Mm -hmm. he was afraid he was going to be spit on or kicked or derided. Compare that. I mean, the the, the POW's homecoming was a, a national celebration. They got... Lifetime passes to Major League Baseball. They got a national media tour. They got free cars, free vacations, a White House dinner. All because this handful of women made the fate of them, their return, so important.
0: I would argue that they didn't, Nixon's administration didn't use them. I would argue those women used the hell out of the Nixon administration. And I think... That is, and if anybody doesn't see it that way, I think you're missing something. I think these women were really, really smart. And I think if you look at that from a lens from today, if you could get those individuals to accompany you to things, speak to the things that you're most passionate about and yell it from the rooftops, I don't think they used them. I think those women used him. And I think they did it brilliantly and they did it and made it look like it was the president. This was the president's idea. I'm just going to stand behind the man of the country. This is all him. He's all smart. I think they played him like a fiddle and I think they knew exactly what they were doing. And I think that's what makes them so brilliant. And I would argue that those women need to be speaking and needs to be teaching and need to be educating nowadays what it means to be a powerful woman, what it means to be somebody that can stand up and speak to causes and not be hysterical about it. I think there is a way to do things nowadays to get the right people to listen to you. But so often... We put our emotions above everything else and we cannot be in our own bodies and articulate what we're needing, thinking and feeling in a way that doesn't like garner some weird viral video of some female screaming at the top of her lungs about something obnoxious. I scream all the time, but I scream with important words coming out of my mouth, not just to make noise. There's enough noise in this world. So I think there's so much to be learned from these women for today in the way if you want to get something done, because, Frankly, let's be honest with ourselves, the fact that they got the president's attention at all, that that was far enough. The fact that then they took it to the next level and they had millions of Americans staying up, acknowledging what was going on, just to be a part of that history, just to witness so those people felt like there was people that cared. That is what we are missing. That is what we have been missing in every single war since Vietnam. And I understand war is disgusting and horrific. And there is so many different adjectives and verbs I could use towards what war is. The fact of the matter is, is war still is happening and it's happening all of the time and it's happening all over the globe and it's happening in places people don't want to acknowledge that it's happening. It's happening boots on the ground in trenches like Vietnam. It's happening in the air like every other time. And it's happening not only to places that we talk about, but it's happening in ways where we are holding people afterwards in POWs and the Geneva Convention is not holding. And I know we touched on the Geneva Convention. I wanna go into that because people think from, I mean, at least from what I've seen, the GWAT generation, the assumption is the Geneva Convention is the end-all be-all. It is there to protect us. If we are held captive or something happens to us, it is there to make sure that war is fought on a level playing field, which those sentences, that they don't even go together. Of course, war is not fought on a level playing field. Of course, people are going to torture people. Of course, people are going to gas people. The worst of the worst shows up in war. So talk to me about the Geneva Convention because you touch on this in the book where, because they did not declare it as an actual war, POWs were not... Being looked at or looked after properly.
1: That's right. The North Vietnamese, uh, you know, despite the fact that they were signatories to the Geneva Conventions, um, did not consider the um, the war of American aggression, as they called it, to be a a, a war. I mean, they they and I, I, you know, it was all technical terms. It was it was wordsmithing, but they used that as a um, as an excuse for not. Um, and here the for sure. And you know,
2: go ahead. Well, I think it's also, Taylor, to your point, I think it was also that there was an assumption that because it had been signed that it was ironclad. And then suddenly uh, nobody's getting mail, nobody's getting updates, nobody's taking calls from women. Remember, we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have voicemail, you had letter writing, you had telegrams, you had You know, a telephone, but no voicemail on the other end, it was early. So I, again, I just want to caution folks to think in the context of what is going on at the time. You said it, Kelsey, they were very well educated they were bright and they had to rely on ingenuity. More than one wife told us, I remember talking with my parents and I would get an idea, maybe I could do a letter writing campaign. We have one wife who has a copy of every letter she typed with the holes punched out by the typewriter to all 435 congressmen who were then the number that were in Congress and all 50 senators. This was organization at a level we don't really see today pecking away at their, their typewriters and, but first starting very carefully. So again, there was an assumption that the Geneva Conventions applied across the board and everybody would have their back. And then there was working toward changing attitudes, winning hearts and minds.
0: Yeah. Hearts and minds are one piece, but you touched on something that happened here when they finally did get in contact with one of the individuals. I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, but he was one of the, first or the more famous POWs? Because the situation is clear. Something came out in the book that, um, again, cautioning others who are reading this, I don't think you need to remind people to pay attention to the time change because I think you do such a great job in writing that it puts you there, whether you realize you're there or not. Um, Every time I pick it up, I I have to be aware of what I'm stepping myself into because it is so in-depth. It is so descriptive that I go right into that feeling and that state. So I think you're good on that. But I'd caution to the fact that you tell some fairly aggressive stories in here that are very emotional and taxing and difficult to read. And it is hard to articulate how it made me feel at the time. But knowing what I know from service, the idea of being captured and the reality that that enemy is going to treat you fairly, that that sits with me, because I know that that's not the truth. And so that really became relevant, though, when you have this one individual who's finally able to start sending photos. I don't know if I'm giving too much away, but it, oh, I loved it so much because it was such a brilliant workaround spy novely moment of the book. And I don't know if you're comfortable bringing up and talking about that, but this is how they really started to realize the truth of what was going on to these, to these uh, service members.
1: That's right. Sybil Stockdale, the uh, wife of uh, that then commander Jim Stockdale was recruited by uh, her, her contact at the Pentagon. Um, and he asked her if she would be willing to um, send encoded letters. And they taught her the code and she practiced the code and uh, sent the first letter uh, in the fall of 66, I believe. Yeah, fall of 66. And there were all kinds of hints in the letter to alert her husband that this was not a normal letter. And he picked up on the hint. Uh, Of course he did. He picked up, the, well, I mean, I thought it was amazing that he picked up on the hint. Um, the letter said, you know, just this letter just needs, this This picture just needs a good soak. It included a letter, I mean, it included a picture, and the picture, the letter said, you know, this letter, this picture just needs a good soak. And so he urinated on the picture, and it came apart, and there was a piece of um, invisible carbon in between the layers of the picture, that he could use to write letters, secret letters back, just by he could write a normal letter and then turn the letter on its side, put a piece of carbon on it, and write, you know, what was really going on. And so in 60, I believe it was 67, she started receiving these encoded letters from him that um, alerted the intelligence officials. One, he was able to identify some of the missing men. Who were actually captured, and he was also able to reveal that the men were being tortured, they were being put in solitary confinement, they were malnourished, they were not getting good medical attention um that they essentially were not abiding by the Geneva Conventions and lots the, of
2: torture mm-hmm. and,
0: yes, and the part it. that he wrote right where he was like they're proficient. I think he used the words like like proficient at torture sixteen torture. hours a day, yeah.
2: Very James Bond like, right?
0: Lead iron, led iron $16
1: which, a yeah, lead iron. Oh, that I, I mentioned that you know they weren't the only couple that engaged in some of this uh, clandestine letter writing. There were several couples that did that successfully. They, and uh, Sybil and Jim Stockdale write uh, write about it extensively in their own book, *In Love and War*, which I would recommend if you haven't yes. read it. Um, but there were several other POWs who wrote about this um, this encoded letter writing practice. Um, but uh, Sybil and Jim became pretty good at it.
0: Yeah, no, no, obviously they did. I mean, it seemed when I was reading that point in the book, I, I was like going to bed and I'd stopped. I was like, I got to see what happens. So I had to keep reading because when you hear about, again, the ingenuity, because there was a point in the book where you, they, you discuss the women met with, did she? they meet with the Cong? Who did they meet with? Because there was a moment the, where the, the North Vietnamese. Yeah, they did meet with them. So, can you talk to me how that happened? Because when I was reading that, I had to go back and reread it because I couldn't understand how they, at that point, were getting in meetings when our own government officials weren't having these meetings.
2: This was, again, an instance of a suggestion from somebody in, within the government, um, but officially there was no trip and they were on their own. They couldn't call. Uh, the U.S. government if something happened, but unofficially uh, it was uh, put together probably with a lot of assistance from uh, government uh, government officials, but they were more than happy to take their message directly to the North Vietnamese. In fact, there is some evidence that one of the men that was there might've been one of the captors of their husband. And I recently shared this with our MIA wife. I said, were you intimidated at all with these by these men? She said, you know, we have seen worse on the evening news. So while they were very angry, um, we weren't intimidated. We just wanted to bring our men home. Right. So yeah, there's a lot of angles to this and a lot of ingenuity and I think life Happened very quickly. All they wanted was to make a dent and get those men home. But really, there was a lot of danger and risk involved. I keep hearing, you know, um, some songs from that era of some of the spy shows, and um, you know, and then the the funny comedic side of it was not was not funny at all. I mean, there was a lot at risk, and women traveling alone again was unheard of. There was a man on the trip with them. He was the father-in-law. Of uh, a missing Marine Corps person. But, um, uh, you know, they basically handled this with Sybil leading her cadre of women. And they did this at a time when we were um, still thinking about spies in the James Bond era. But um, they didn't really know what they were getting into, to be honest with you. And they just knew that they had to do everything they could to get any diplomatic channel to work.
0: And I mean, it was so drastically different. I would say the spy side of things was so drastically different than it is nowadays. I mean, it still exists very much. It's just very different, and everyone seems very normal. And it is not like it was back then. When you, when I was reading how he caught on to the letter, and how his response right away, he knew, boom, boom. He was looking for this, and she was looking for this, and both were there. I was, I was cheering because. The idea that he was clear-minded enough after sustaining that type of torture and that kind of prolonged um, time with no food and with no water and not only that, especially after seeing and what you wrote, and I'm so glad that you put the story in there before you broke down what they were experiencing, which was ultimately on the on the news or the TV when they showed what they can do with mind control on some level when you break down an individual And that is something our services are incredibly fearful of and something that happens when they go, you know, you go, if you're a pilot, you go to Seer School um, where you learn how to evade and capture and all of these things. I know that the techniques that were used, you know, on that uh, individual are really horrific in order to get that person to respond in the way that he did. I don't know if you're comfortable talking about that story a little bit, but I appreciated where you put it in the book and how you started off with that because that sets the tone for the level of evil that they were willing to go to to illustrate to the American people and the rest of the world what they were doing to Americans.
1: You do know that the uh, Sears School today has been um, significantly informed by the experience of the Vietnam POWs.
0: Absolutely, a friend of mine is a Seer School instructor, and um, I've had her on the show as well. And I know I did not have to go through Seer School, but quite a few of friends did, and I learned a lot about what they do there and how they do it and why they do what they do now.
1: The Seer School in San Diego uh, for the Navy is named for Stockdale, hmm. and a former POW, Doug Hegdal, uh, taught there for a number of years. Oh wow! So um You know, those who go through Seer School today are benefiting from the experience of these men. No it's,
0: doubt, uh, it's yeah, it's really, it's really tragic, and it's hard for people when they read this. It might be harder for them to understand. I mean, because when, when you look at, uh, I would say, honestly, my generation. I mean, I'm 34. When they look at GWAT, you look at the people that were involved in that war the idea of being held captive and tortured was not the same. You knew at some level, you were most likely just gonna have your head cut off. You know, you knew what was coming down the pike. It wasn't, we were gonna keep feeding you and do these things and slowly torture you. Don't get me wrong, torture is involved very often. But when you looked at Vietnam, that was one of the first, you know, public indicators of the trauma they were inflicting, that was one of the first, we're gonna throw this in your face and show you what we're capable of and what we're really doing to your people. That was the shock to the system, if you will.
1: Well, you know, North Vietnamese made a point of, I mean, they, they tortured the men, but they really did not want them to die in captivity because these right. men had tremendous propaganda value, tremendous mm-hmm.
2: propaganda value. And the Hanoi March that you're, I, I think you're referring to, Kelsey, was a tremendously orchestrated propaganda ploy. It was horrible to watch and Americans and some of the families didn't see it at the same time, but each one was terrified. They were terrified by the threat of um, war crimes trials because things were evolving and they didn't know exactly where they would stop. The thing about the North Vietnamese is they were sophisticated at trying to court public opinion. That's this one backfired, and it also uh, received the attention of government officials as well. For those uh, who
0: don't know exactly what you're speaking of, because it is quite, I would, I would, it was quite traumatic, and I would like one of you to to speak to it because, uh, to be honest with you, I'm Canadian, and I I'm full I'm full on a all the way Canadian. I did not know a lot about this. I knew of the level of torture. I knew of the sophisticated metal, um, methods that they were using. But Vietnam was something that was not taught to us the same way it was taught to Americans. And so when I read about the march, I, I would love if one of you could illustrate what you're speaking to.
1: So the Hanoi March occurred in July of 1966. The North Vietnamese rounded up about 52 of the American POWs. Uh, shackled them together and paraded them through the streets of Hanoi and basically allowed the Vietnamese people to take out their anger and frustration on the bombing, about the bombing, on these men. Uh, They invited media. They had spectator seating. It was truly a parade of the American air pirates, as they called them. So this was captured on television. It was captured in the news media. These men were pummeled, spit on, beat down, uh, almost to the point of death, uh, as they were paraded through the streets of Hanoi. They had guards who were trying to fend off some of the angry mob, but it was a really, really frightening, frightening evening. And. The North Vietnamese intended this to be a propaganda win for them. It backfired. And for the first time, the U.S. government, as well as government leaders from all over the world, issued public rebukes to Hanoi. And the threat of war crimes trials abated. Ho Chi Minh had been talking about war crimes trials for months for these men. And after they were publicly rebuked and tried in the court of public opinion that summer, the talk of war crimes trials just went away, so all of a sudden the U.S. government realized, hmm, maybe they are, maybe we do need to do some counter propaganda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the wives, of course, said, "Well, of course we need to be we need to be talking about the fact that these men are being mistreated." But it took another almost three almost three years for the government to actually shift policies and go public, and put them put the North Vietnamese on report.
0: It's uh it's emotional reading the book. I'm not gonna lie. It's uh it's a very taxing book in a in a good way, in a way that ne- it needs to it needs to be read. And it, if it's not taxing to you, in my opinion, there's something very wrong with your mental state because you talk very openly and very honestly about the rawness of this and the emotions of the women. Talk to me about the children. Because like you said, you grew up around a lot of these kids. I mean, there's this lovely word we use in coaching and, and and a lot of the community I work with and it's called intergenerational trauma. And it's real. Talk to me about these kids. Yeah, you know, I, I, I know a lot of the
1: kids and um, some of them are more damaged than others. Um, you know, one of them quite honestly said to me, I have to tell you that, I spent a lot of time in therapy because, you know, not only was my dad missing, but my mom was off traveling the world, uh, lobbying and promoting and leading this national organization. So I applauded, you know, her cause, but I needed my parents and I, you know, both of them were absent. So it was, yeah, there's a total, and you know, there's one issue that we didn't, really explore in the book, but I think about it all, all the time. Um, These women were not shy about using their children in their campaign. Mm. Uh, One of our characters put two of her, her two daughters on a postage stamp, right? There was a a painting done of her two children writing a letter to Santa, please bring home my, my daddy. And that appeared on a postage stamp. One of the other wives had no problem putting her son on a billboard that okay. appeared around the country please bring my daddy home another one had a picture of her son praying in church please bring my daddy home uh, they would take their children up to capitol hill with them they would take them to the pentagon with them they engendered empathy right and sympathy But in some ways, I look at some of those tactics and I wonder, I cringe a little bit. You know, would I do that with my daughter? I don't know. If I was desperate enough to get attention, maybe
2: I would. Desperate times. Desperate times. Desperate times. times. Right? Yeah, desperate times, but also again, I caution context because we didn't have childcare the way we was do today. I just going to
0: say, you didn't yeah. have childcare. So on some level, it's, this is right. necessity, right? Absolutely they have to, their minds are my humans. They go everywhere. Right. And I just talked and to one of the yesterday
1: who said, you know, the reason that my son is crawling around my feet on the steps of the Capitol Hill in that picture was because my babysitter fell through.
2: Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's just the, that's the reality.
1: We
2: We didn't think a lot about single, you know, heads of households, they were an afterthought. And if you were black, it was even worse, because you were really a second class citizen in the eyes of convention. So these women, I think the credit goes to ingenuity. But I will say, the wives are very resilient, but not without, not across the board, most were very resilient, but they ran the gamut of emotions and reactions as humans do the children that intergenerational trauma you bring up is probably there and indelible. And I guess they got to see it twice. They got to see it on television. They got to see it through watching their parents in anguish. Yeah. And uh, we didn't have counseling then for families, which is really, and we didn't us, acknowledge the- PTSD yep. and we and didn't alcohol abuse,
0: all of it. We yeah. didn't acknowledge any of it. We have one character
1: in our book, and I don't know if you've gotten to this, but um, his father was shot down and went missing when he was three weeks old. So he never met. Yeah. Right. And in 2017, uh, or I'd say mid 2010s, his family finds out that his father's IT card is on display at a military museum in Vinh, Vietnam. And he said, you know, it really, really, really ticks me off. That I've never received any remains of my father, and yet all we have is this ID card, and it's sitting on display for tourists at a museum in Vietnam. So he made a, he made an appeal to the U.S. government to try and get that ID card returned, and lo and yeah. behold, got it returned. He said, it showed up in a FedEx package at my house one day. Okay, and that's
0: not okay. Number one, that it just showed up with a FedEx package that should have been hand delivered by a military government member. That's that is what, the last remaining of your father. I know, right. That's what he said. he said. Really? This, this is how it's getting to me, you know? And
1: he said, I couldn't open it. He said, I couldn't open it. So I stuck it in the bottom drawer of my bureau and where I keep my workout clothes. And every time I open that drawer to go work out, I saw it And he said, I took that package to Washington on a family trip over Christmas, and I went to the wall with my wife and my two kids, and I opened the package, and there was my dad's ID card, and it had survived. His picture was intact. His signature was intact. We have a picture of it in our book of him holding the ID card with his two kids next to the wall. And as he's telling me this story, he starts to cry. This is a guy I went to high school with and college with served in the Navy with, he was an F-18 pilot. He was on an early season of Survivor. I mean, this guy is, is super, super tough, rugged. And he started crying. And I said, Hunter, I said, those are tears for a man you've never met. He said, yep. I never met him.
2: But it is my dad.
0: Yeah. You don't have to meet someone to not, to, to have that connection, he's a part of you. I, his blood runs through you. You're going to feel that. That's right. how it works.
1: And he is a doppelganger for his dad. Really? Oh. He says he goes to his dad's squadron reunions every now and then. And when he walks in the room, he says, they look at me like they're seeing a ghost. No doubt.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that gives me all the, yeah. all the feels.
1: The whole issue of the MIAs, we spent a whole third of the book talking about this legacy of the MIAs. I mean, you know, we got the POWs home in 1973, but the issue of the missing, those 1,500 men that were still missing from Vietnam, became a thorn in our side of this nation, and the families are the ones who kept it at the forefront of our nation. The Ford and the Carter, I mean, yes, the Ford and the Carter administration were you know, busy Getting over, you know, trying to deal with the national malaise. They wanted to put Vietnam behind them. They didn't really put much attention on the issue of our missing men. Reagan was different. Reagan had a war bracelet during the Vietnam War. He got to know many of the POWs when they returned. He made the fate of the missing a a priority. And from that point on, the government has spent a really an inordinate amount of time trying to track down our missing men from Vietnam and from all wars.
0: 130 million annually. The budget Still is the, yeah. that's the their budget, budget yes. to, to, to have and actually go find individuals. Right.
1: And I don't know if you you remember the movie Rambo. Oh yeah. Yes. Well, that was there was a real Rambo, and he's in our book. His name is Lieutenant Colonel Beau Greitz. And the the issue, the the fascination and the fixation and 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 the controversy over the MIAs has kind of reached the crescendo during the Reagan administration, when men like Beau Greites, uh, a real life Rambo, um, said preyed on the vulnerabilities of a lot of these MIA families and said, you know, I'm convinced that we have left men behind that they are still being held against their will. And, you know, you give me $10,000 and I can go track down and capture your husband. So there were a number of these groups all throughout the 80s and the early 90s who preyed on, you know, the the tiny bit of hope that these families had. And unfortunately, it really caused the whole nation to believe that we were still leaving men behind. There was a Wall Street Journal survey in 1991 or 1992. Seventy-five percent of Americans believed that were still men being held in captivity against their will in Southeast Asia.
0: Jesus. There was, yes.
1: There was a. It, it caused the Senate to hold a an investigation, a two-year investigation, chaired by John Kerry and John McCain. Uh, they spent millions of dollars, uh, interviewed thousands of people and uh, could find no credible evidence that we had left anyone behind. After that, the issue started to abate, but the government has, the, the families have still put the pressure on the government to continue to look for missing remains from all wars.
0: We are all finding, wars. yeah, we are finding so many. Just uh, I've just heard of some Canadians that were found. I mean, they're World War II, but we're finding remains. And I think that needs to be something that we continue to do. I believe... There are a lot of things we could be spending our money on them. Ukraine is not one of them, but this is something that is necessary. This is people who have put their lives on the line, hoping that and being told that we'll never leave you behind. It doesn't matter what happens to your body. We will find you. You will be sent back to your family where you deserve to be. And I've seen that in action, in our wars. We leave nothing behind. I mean, we go back. And we scour for everything, any piece of equipment, anything with your name on it. It does not matter. We don't leave you behind. Right. Remember the case of Bo Bergdahl? Mm. Yeah.
1: I mean, you can look at the case of Scott O'Grady in 1994 when he was shot down over Bosnia. Yeah. Or even
0: Brittany Griner. That's right.
2: Yeah, not military. Yeah, Brittany Griner should have stayed there. Um, but we, we still search because I think it's, you know, we like what, to say it's quintessentially American, but it, it may be quintessentially North, you know, North America. and It is
0: North America's more. And I would say the Brittany Garner situation uh, is a sticking point in my side, because there's also another service member who is currently still sitting over there. And when you know what you're doing, you are aware. Sorry, I have to pause this for one second.
2: I sent a.
1: I sent, I sent an email to, uh, I did too.
2: I sent a text. Did you hear me? Can you hear me? Okay. Okay. Yeah, we both did. Okay, great.
0: Um, but yeah, when you have individuals like that, who are, you're going to be ridiculous about things, I get you deserve the right to come back. You deserve to not be held anyway, but If there are other service members, I do believe that they should have been taken just as much as she has. I really struggle with that one. I'm gonna be completely honest with you. I really, really struggle with that one.
2: But what's important to remember is the legacy that these women created for having no tolerance, no stomach for leaving people behind. We said no man, but, or woman behind
0: no human being that comes from america well jessica lynch is a different that's again that's a different story but if you go to war you go somewhere where you are an american or i actually i can't say canadian because we have left a lot of people in afghanistan so uh we have we don't leave you behind americans they they don't they will go to the ends of the earth for you i wish it was like that for all governments i wish it was like that for all humanity where the value of one human being mattered just as much as another human being regardless if you were a professional athlete or you were a service member or you were somebody taking photos or you were a nurse or you were an aid worker you all matter if you are a part of this nation you have a passport under that you are an american you deserve to be found if you are in any sort of, I guess you can group it, NATO. If you were part of, you know, cause that's really what our conglomerate is, right? Is NATO, if you're a part of NATO, you are never going to be left behind. Other governments that can't speak for the way the policies are run are very different. Um, so that is true. And at the end of the day, uh, that, you know, it takes that kind of money to go and find people and remains from that day and age. I mean, it's so long ago now that deterioration happens and composition happens. so we have to go and and look for these people who are still missing because i I know there are uh, you know World War II remains. I know that that's always I mean that's going to be a long time.
1: yeah, they're they're still um repatriating remains from World War II. They're digging up uh, mass grave sites in um, in uh, Hawaii. Uh, yes. After Pearl Harbor, we took a lot of remains and buried them together in Punchbowl, and they are exhuming those remains. I mean, DNA technology helps, right? Of course, we didn't have a lot of this technology earlier, but they are now able to um, identify remains that have been sitting unknown um, and unidentified for decades.
0: You know, you two, I, I'm. We're gonna go here in a moment, but I wanted to touch on something that I think is important. Um, you know, a lot of people choose to write books about difficult things, and again what draws people to that is to each of their own but to be writing these books they take an emotional toll on the writer and I would like to talk about that with both of you because this is not a a fly by the seat of your pants you know huck down on paper this is years and years of deep research emotional exposure exposure therapy if you will and sitting and listening to these stories so it had to have had a toll on both of you
1: a toll. You know they, a toll. Um, my daughter was two when I started this book, and she's now ten. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I I can measure the uh, the amount of time and the amount of investment that uh, that I made uh, by how tall she is.
2: <laughs> you know, I think what kept us going. We had many more stories, and we constantly had to refine and and cut. And as you know, as an author, probably you can't put everything in there. I think it was the attachments to some of these women that it was harder to let go. And honestly, we keep in touch with them quite a bit now. Some many of them are still alive and um, we have one that's almost 91 and it's really impressive. And it's actually, I would say Kelsey, it's more inspiring than yeah. upsetting. Yeah. Yes, we tear up a little bit when to hear you talk about it in a way that we recognize it as a story is really, um, It's actually very uh, fulfilling, because that was what we hoped for. Hmm. Because, you know, by eliminating a story or uh, funneling a story, you maybe lose something and you don't want to do that as a journalist, you want to try to present it the way it was told. But I think it was an honor to rate them. And I'm, I couldn't be happier that uh, Taylor recruited me to work with her on this. Although I think we know each other as if we live next door <laughs> and we don't. We don't, we wrote in two different states actually. I'm in Florida and she's in uh, Virginia. But we brought different perspectives. We brought different ideologies to the project mm-hmm. but the women are the ones who shaped this project. We could always hear their voice. And that is what I wanted to leave the audience with that narratives matter, dedication matters, and really being clear and purpose, which we know now has a lot to do with preventing PTSD. It matters. And I think I want to encourage everybody to read the story because, and the set of stories because I hope it's inspirational should we ever go through the unimaginable again. And I think we might. Yeah, You don't want my response on that.
0: <laughs> you you ladies don't have time for the energy i got for that it's true though you do need to read this book uh quite a few of our listeners are uh, you're not watching but if you um are watching this is um this amazing cover here it i i love the way i love i love how you illustrated this on the on the front cover i got to tell you it's so obvious it's so beautiful it captures exactly what you're talking about and it can put you this book puts you, it puts you right back. It 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 pulled me so far back, and um, I got to tell you, it was an honor to read it and get the chance to to see this before everyone else. Um, it is something that is worth sitting down and picking up physically. I think there's something to be said about reading a physical book, and um, I'm sure the audio is going to be fantastic, but sitting down with this physical book, there's something about being able to hold the photos and see the photos and the connection to the family is so much deeper. Um, So I do recommend that everybody go grab a copy of this book and we'll make sure that we put everywhere you can find it in the show notes. And uh, I would love that list of the music, please. And we will attach that because I'm a big music person. A lot of people in our community use music for healing. Music is healing and it does allow for emotion and things to change. So what I would say is We will put the Spotify list into the notes. I encourage you to definitely go and listen to it before you pick up a book. If you have them labeled by chapter, if not, start at the top of the list, listen to a song, then pick up the book because it's going to place you in such a different emotional state. And um, I think, again, the writing is so beautiful. It is so descriptive. And it really is what pulls this through. And uh, I can imagine these women are so proud and they should be because you told their stories in such a heroic true way that i felt like you didn't miss a beat you were right there with them you were holding their hand and just on the on fly on the wall taking notes because um it's deep And I'm grateful for the opportunity to have both of you on the show. So could you, before we go, let everyone know where they can find both of you, any of the work that you do and the amazing books that you have, because you should be supported. You are heroes of this country and you continue to tell the stories of those that are lost otherwise. So please let everyone know where they can
2: find you. So we have a website, um, unwaveringbook.com, and we have social media, both Instagram and Facebook uh, and also Twitter and they can go to unwaveringbook.com on those sites as well. And we look forward to hearing from our readers and Kelsey, thank you so much for the opportunity.
1: It's really a pleasure. Really, really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you.
0: Yeah, no, it's fantastic having you ladies. Uh, You too, stick with me. Everyone else we will put it in the show notes. We'll see y'all next week.